Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. Good to see you all. Welcome to the people in chat. Um, and I don't know if there's anyone on Rumble right now because we are just starting out on Rumble. Uh, but we are trying to migrate there slowly. So if you're on Rumble, welcome. And I will try, I promise I will try to pay attention to the Rumble chat as well. It's a little bit annoying because they don't have an, an API that StreamYard can pull in uh, like other platforms, but maybe they will someday. Anyway, uh, thank you all who financially support this and other content on Unsafe Space. Uh, and thank you to those who share. Sharing the content around does help. And uh, lots of topics are evergreen that we talk about here and also on Rebel Civics. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll find opportunity to share them in the future. Uh, let's see here. All right. Sorry, I'm a little bit discombobulated. Okay, let's get started. So uh, today we're going to talk about separating art from the artist, as I as I mentioned. Um, this is going to be there's a ch one change that's coming to dangerous thoughts is I'm going to try and focus on one topic at a time, and I'm going to focus a little bit more on evergreen topics and less uh, sensational news stuff. It doesn't get as many clicks, but it's, I think, more important. It's what I care about more. And so, therefore, that's what I want to spend my time doing. It also might make the shows shorter if I'm just focusing on one topic. It definitely makes them more shareable, so I'm going to try and do that. I keep saying that shows would be shorter, though, and they never are. So who knows if it'll actually work out or if I'll just fill the entire time with one topic. I'll try not to. So let's talk about today's topic, which is separating art from the artist. The, my motivation uh, to talk about this topic today is uh, it, there's a lot of different reasons why this is is kind of relevant. One of, one of the reasons is this question has become more relevant in the post-2016 rise of the authoritarian left. Um, I've taken to kind of as a not hard and fast rule, but maybe a rule of thumb or a heuristic uh, standard of basically if a movie or a television program was made after 2016, I'm automatically suspicious of its quality, uh, which is weird, but generally correct. I'm generally correct to be suspicious. Um, there's been a, a turn towards propaganda um, which obviously is less about separating the art from the artist and more about the artist separating their views from the art and actually trying to make art and not propaganda. Um, so there's been a turn there. And uh, there's just been a lot of stuff post-2016 where um, even if the art isn't propaganda, we're certainly seeing the dark underbelly of a lot of stars that we hadn't seen in the past. People who maybe weren't as active have decided that their star-studded multi-million dollar voices needed to be heard, uh, and they needed to tell us how wrong we were about X, Y, or Z. So you have the Branch Covidians uh, out there en masse in Hollywood. You had lots of Trump derangement syndrome in Southern California and New York weaving its way through the social circles there. Um, you've got some radical trans ideologue, ideologues there as well. So a lot of that stuff has has come out since 2016. So it's brought this topic uh, to the forefront. 
Um, someone says in the, uh, I have a quiz here, by the way, that says, do you ever consider the moral character of an artist when appreciating his or her art? I have uh, yes, but only if I'm paying for it. Yes, even if I'm not paying and nope, I don't care. People are active in that poll. Someone says, I can't choose an answer. Moral character is too vague for me. Take it however you want, Don. Uh, whatever you, whatever you mean. I mean, moral character is uh, if you think that there's a difference between um, your heroes that you know and Ted Bundy, that difference is moral character. <laughs> so take it to mean that whatever you whatever you want. Um, okay. Uh, so that so one of the things is post-2016, there's been this thing, and this, this question arises also because of cancel culture. Cancel culture's been a big deal, and yeah, mostly it's the left canceling wrong thinkers, but conservatives have started to flirt with the idea of um, maybe government intervention in social media. Uh, some people, for some people, this question matters a lot for Kanye West. I guess he goes by yay. Uh, so, you know, people are, I actually haven't investigated too much. I hear the headlines about things he said and done. Um, I don't really listen to his music or follow him, but that's become a, that's become an issue for people. Um, and of course, even if the left is doing most of the canceling, it still raises the, the question on principle. Is it on principle? Do you, should you be caring about this stuff? Um, there's also a, there's also a personal there's also a personal reason for me. Um, we have a lot of dinner table conversations in our house, and uh, my daughter came home from school. Man, I mean, you just can't escape this stuff. She came home from school, and they were reading this book called The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. And um, this is... It's a, it's from, this is a, I'm going to read this part from Amazon, some excerpts. Amazon says that the best-selling author, Sherman Alexie, tells the story of Junior, a budding cartoonist growing up in the Spokane Indian Reservation. Is it pronounced Spokane or Spokane? I don't know. The one in Washington. Uh, determined to take his future into his own hands, Junior leaves his troubled school on the res to attend an all-white farm town high school where the only other Indian is the school mascot. So it's clearly some lefty stuff. I get it. We expect some lefty. Uh, th this looks like, you know, rank tribalism based on race, some lefty writing thing. Okay, fine. Uh, but this author, this author is an award-winning author. This isn't a random book that was chosen. Uh, this dude, he's the winner of the 2010 Penn Faulkner Award, the 2007 National Book Award for Young People's Literature, the 2001 Penn Melmot Award for Excellence in the Short Story, and a special citation for the 1994 Penn Hemingway Award for Best First Fiction. Uh, he wrote a, a film uh, which he, and also co-produced it, which won the Audience Award and Filmmaker's Trophy at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival. So... Uh, <laughs> Mainstream likes the guy, uh, so it's not a random book. The fact that mainstream likes him, uh, I know, doesn't mean much for many people on this stream, including myself, but so that's where this book came from. What makes it interesting is while they're reading this book in class, my daughter's telling me, you know, all the girls in class feel really uncomfortable about this book, and they're talking about it amongst themselves. They're feeling really uncomfortable with the sexual content in this book, which is like 
oddly predatory from the male main character and gross. And they don't like the way he treats the girls in the book. And so they're all feeling really disgusted and grossed out by this. It then became a discussion point because, as it turns out, the author himself was accused of sexual harassment. Ten women came forward. I guess only three went public. Ten came forward. Now, I'm not going to say he's guilty of it. I don't know, so I'm not going to cast aspersions. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, just like we would give everyone else. It's a typical kind of – it was in the Me Too era. Um, so even this guy, as much as we may not disagree, may not agree with him, he, he deserves the benefit of the doubt. He apologized for hurting – the people he loved and admitted to an affair, but he claimed it was consensual and he's denied any kind of accusations. But it, it brought up this question, which they talked about in her class, but also at our dinner table, which is, well, how much do you separate the art? She didn't like this book. And, you know, my daughter hated the book anyway. So it's not like she wanted to appreciate the book and the guy's potentially sketchy past was a problem. But it did bring up the conversation in principle, like how much does the artist and art, how much can they be separated? Uh, Richard Petz, by the way, thank you earlier for the Richard for the super chat. He does another one. He says, I consider art as one of the linchpins of culture. That said, containing the conflating of flaws with the defective moral character is something to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, we could get it. There's probably an entire. I was going to say an entire show, but probably more. There's probably an entire semester's worth of discussion about what moral character means. Like it's a summation, how much moral care, like if you lie once in your life, are you now a liar and a horrible person? Probably not. Uh, if you're a politician who lies for a living, are you a horrible person? Absolutely. So, you know, that, that gets to be a complex question. I'm not going to try and address all those complexities here uh, tonight. Okay. But, um, it does bring up the question is it like, what does it mean to separate the art from the artist? What does that even mean? Um, because on the one hand, you could be talking about emotional separation, like, uh, I love the art, but I hate the artist, or uh, I can't, I can't like the art because of the artist. That's like an emotional thing. Um, you could also mean that you want to separate it by your actions, like, well, uh, I really like this art, but because I know that this person is involved, I will not do things to support the art. Maybe I won't even consume it or I won't pay for it or whatever. Those are action-based things that you, you can act in a way contrary to your emotional response to art if you choose to. So there's, there's like emotional reaction or this, this actions. And I, I can see this most often reflected in two different formulations of the separate the art from the artist's question. And those two formulations are one, some people will say, can you separate art from the artist? And other people will say, should you separate art from the artist? And those are two very different questions. Um, so I'm going to focus on the first one. Can you separate the two rather than should you? So in other words, uh, most of this discussion today is going to be descriptive rather than proscriptive. I know most philosophy, we talk about proscriptive stuff. But the reason for that, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, one of the reasons I don't want to be proscriptive here and I want to be descriptive and really unravel this. Um, first, I think the answer the answer wasn't totally obvious to me. Um, but one of the reasons to, to be descriptive here is psychology uh, is involved when it comes to art. Um, 
the value it provides to you is personal. Um, and it's difficult to make universal statements about what art people, quote, should like or should consume. Um, you can probably come up with some extreme cases that would suggest severe psychological dysfunction if someone you really liked certain kind of certain thing. But in general, it's actually quite difficult to make sweeping universal statements. This is something that I disagree with Ayn Rand about. She was very much um, she was very much about uh, your psychological, your emotional response being 100% a function of your uh, conscious philosophical values. And she is 100% wrong factually about that being the case. That is not true. Um, and we know much more about uh, how psychology works than we did when she was writing. Um, I actually wrote an article about this. It's called Don't Tell Me What I Should Like. I think it was in 2019. Um, if you're interested at all in reading my perspective, I'm not going to get into that here, but uh, I will paste the article in chat and I will put it in the show notes in case anyone wants to read um, what my thoughts are there. So, so A, I think there's the psychology involved in, in the appreciation of art. So it's hard to make universal statements about what one ought to do. It's also impossible, and we need to recognize this as humans, it is impossible to intellectually override your emotional respond, response to art in the moment. You might be able to make changes that uh, over time affect your emotional response to things, but you can't override your emotional response. And, I, and it's self-destructive to try to override your emotional response. Um, it doesn't mean you have to act on it, but it's self-destructive to try and override that emotional response. It's, it's a denial of reality, and the reality is your emotional response. Um, you, you just as a personal example, like, I can't listen to uh, The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails or Combat Rock from The Clash or 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 basic, you know, or Disintegration from The Cure, three albums that I love. I can't listen to them and say, well... The premise beneath this music conflicts with my consciously chosen philosophy. Therefore, I don't like it. Like, no, I I hate it or love it first emotionally. And it is true that sometimes with music, the lyrics, if I read the lyrics uh, and I didn't know them, sometimes that actually does affect my emotional reaction to the music and I'll fall out of love with the piece of music because I'll be like, oh, that's what they're saying. Uh, it's too bad. <laughs> I still like the tune, but... I don't feel the same way about music, but it's not an intellectual decision. Uh, I don't decide to like or dislike music. So first you have the response and then you can judge the message of the art philosophically. And if you're in conflict with those two things, if you say, well, I for some reason like this thing, but I think the philosophical message is bad. If that conflict is um, – disturbing enough to you, you can always investigate your conscious convictions and maybe maybe you're wrong about some conscious convictions. You can also investigate your psychology, right? Maybe your psychology is out of alignment with your convictions. But again, your psychology is maybe partly partly a result of your philosophy, but it's also not 100% part of, it's not 100% a consequence of your philosophy. So, um, you know, we have, there's genetics and epigenetics, which includes your environment that like shape who you are, what you like and dislike in a, in a way that it doesn't matter, you know, 
how much philosophical work you do and how careful you are at drawing your conclusions, you're always going to have certain psychological dispositions that aren't there. I wouldn't say they're healthy or unhealthy, but even if they're unhealthy, they're there and not always possible to, to get rid of. Uh, Richard Petz correctly says disintegration is awesome. It is one of the best albums ever made. And I know a lot of people will think that's wrong. But that's the only objective thing I can say about art. It's one of the best albums. <laughs> All right. Um, so look, it's counterproductive. It, this means it's counterproductive for you to personally hold yourself to some standard that's like, I should feel such and such a way about this particular piece of art. That's just torturing yourself. What you feel is what you feel. You might decide whether or not to support something financially or, or consume it or behave in a certain way in relation to it in the context of considering a trade-off between values, like your values and what the and how the art aligns, you might make decisions about it, but how you feel about it is not something to torture yourself about. And I'm hoping that this discussion, just this descriptive discussion, rather than a proscriptive discussion, will help you make that trade-off rationally, given your value structure and how much you like or don't like pieces of art and what they mean to you. So that's... Um, that's why I'm going to focus on the descriptive stuff. All right. So when is it easier? I mean, if we're going to focus on the descriptive stuff, an immediate question that came to mind for me was, well, when is it easier for me personally uh, and for other people that I know? Uh, when's it easier to separate the art from the artist and when is it more difficult? Um, and hopefully if we understand our psychology about this, we can help each other make decisions about our behaviors in relation to art. Um, so when do we tend to find it difficult to separate art from the artists? Uh, and this is what I came up with. This is not, you know, this is not math. Like I didn't prove this. This is, this is, this is what I think. Um, uh, maybe, you know, some other people have some other frameworks, but the things that we came up with around the dinner table here are there's two, there's at least two factors that this depends on. Um, when we, when we talk about how we feel about an artist and their art and whether we can separate them. One is, uh, the nature of, I'm going to use the word sin here. I don't mean it religiously, but I, what I mean is if there's an artist that, you know, does says whatever behaves in ways that you find, um, morally reprehensible, we're calling those sins. Okay. So. One of the factors is the nature of that sin, and the other factor is the relation between that sin and the work. So those are the two factors that uh, I noticed. We're going to dive in and talk about them, maybe give a couple examples. So, um, all right, the, the nature of the sin. So Socrates would say, and did say, uh, basically, he didn't use these words, uh, that all sin is a sin of ignorance, basically, that you 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 are immoral or you you lack virtue solely out of ignorance. Um, that may be true on some level, sort of, but we have to recognize what we do know is that psychology can induce willful ignorance, right? Um, you could explicitly, this is less often, but you could explicitly say, like, I don't want to know this. This is bothersome. I don't want to know it. Don't tell me, like, I don't I don't want to look. Um, that's a very, it's a very overt evasion. That doesn't happen as often, but uh, what happens much more often is a, a more subtle evasion, an implicit 
an implicit ignorance, implicit willful ignorance. And this is when you have a thought um, flit across the screen of your consciousness. And if it happens to make you feel uncomfortable, you push it aside rather than explore it. Um, and this is, I've, I've mentioned this before, but this is what actually, uh, actually Ayn Rand considered then the essence of free will and the essence of choice really all boiled down to um, the ability to say yes or no, to think about this thing or, or evade this thing. And um, sometimes that evasion is, is rational because there's other things that you know you should be focusing on or whatever. But this is the, that was kind of in her mind, the nature of free will. It's not a bad, it's not a bad model. Um, so there is this kind of, if we're going to go with Socrates, which again, I'm not, um, there's other models you could go with. If we're going to go with Socrates and say, okay, it's, it's ignorance. Then uh, it could be willful ignorance and, there's some kind of evasion evolved in this. And that's the model I'm going to use to talk about this for just a moment. So um, in, in general, I think the more abstract the consequences that people deal with in life, the easier they are to evade. Uh, if they're, if what, if their behavior is bad or the decisions are bad. So let me just give you an example, um, a really concrete example. If you pick up an axe and you hack someone with the axe, it's very hard to evade that you're causing them harm and murdering them. The blood's there. It's disgusting. They're right in front of you suffering, probably yelling no. It's a horrible thing. Most of us, it makes us very disturbed to even think about that, right? It's it's in our face. It's very concrete. It's hard to evade that you're doing something bad when that's what you're doing. That's colossal evasion. It's easier to evade if what you're doing is a little bit more abstract. So let's say you're supporting an unnecessary war. I'm not picking on any particular war, but let's say you're supporting an unnecessary war. It's not, and then what I mean by unnecessary is it's not really in self-defense. It's just a war. It could be a war of, of conquest. Um, you don't generally see the innocent people suffer directly. If you do, there's always another side to blame for the suffering. Um, and you and there's lots of ways to rationalize it because it somehow might be connected ultimately to your defense. Like if I if we don't do X, Y, and Z, then what might happen at some time in the future, these people will do A, B, and C. And so and you can rationalize a first strike. It's a little bit more abstract. Um, most people would sooner vote for war than hack someone up with a bayonet, right? Um, and most people would sooner drone strike than have to strangle someone with their bare hands, even if you know they weren't worried about their personal safety. So it's easier to kind of evade what you're doing when that's when that's going on, when it's like a policy decision like that. You're removed from the consequences. It's even easier to evade when it's a higher level political decision. So uh, if you are voting for a democratic socialist or even typical uniparty person, right? If you are voting for someone who you know is going to increase the size and the scope of the government and the power, they're going to increase the debt, they're going to inflate the currency, they're going to curtail free markets, all this stuff's going to make it, frankly, easier to go to war and do a whole bunch of other bad things. 
it's it's easier it's even easier to evade those results and one of the reasons is those are longer term results it could take decades for those things to happen um when thing when bad things do happen there will be multivariate factors contributing to this so there'll be lots of room for rationalization um and you see this all the time there's like a failed policy that goes on for decades and every time someone looks to do an analysis it's well we need to try more of the same because there's other things it could have been maybe we weren't doing enough and blah 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 so all that stuff happened it's long term it happens very abstract it happens along uh over a long periods of time um and you can see this right you can see that <laughs> Uh, you can see that evasion is easy because when candidates run for office, ra very rarely does anyone track their past. They don't look at their they don't look at their past, maybe recent past, but um, typically they're you know people are paying attention on the last few months of what's going on, um, and uh, and even when even when candidates are blamed for things, it's often misattributed, right? So. Uh, whatever president is, is is in office at any given time is typically blamed for the state of the economy. The state of the economy is a slow-moving ship, and rarely does the president have direct control over what's happening in the economy. Uh, I don't like Biden any more than any of the people in chat, but he's not 100% responsible for this. In fact, he's responsible for a bunch of stuff. <laughs> we, can, we can give him that. But, uh, you know, Biden is not the one who printed six trillion dollars completely not all by himself he had help right so uh and that stuff you know that six trillion dollar printing we are going to experience the consequences of that inflationary uh behavior years from now and he's not gonna be in office then either uh, and then it gets even easier. If you, if you want to make it even easier, you can move to an even more abstract than politics. What's more abstract than politics? Well, philosophy, right? Um, and you can do things like you can undermine individualist ethics by accepting collectivist or, or maybe even nihilist notions, right? So you can accept the notion of the public good being a valid concept as opposed to individual rights. You can let it in to your conceptual hierarchy and say, oh yeah, public good, that's a reason. You can accept concept, you can accept concepts like the social contract. You can accept concepts in, uh, we, you know, we talked about this with respect to environmentalism, you can, ex you can accept that uh, minimizing human impact is the goal without really having thought that through. Um, you, can, you can erase the distinction between long-term rational selfishness and the greed of immediate gratification of your desires. And you can conflate those two things. Uh, and call them both greed and, and say they're bad. You can conflate benevolence with duty, right? So you can say, well, helping people out of benevolence is noble, and you can conflate it with duty and say, well, therefore, you have a moral obligation to help people, and if you don't, we can force you. Um, you can, the, the postmodernists like this lately, right? You can, you can say, well, reason is just one way of knowing. There's plenty of ways to verify the reality correspondence of your conclusions and your concept hierarchy, right? Maybe because something that you want to be true doesn't fit the reason it doesn't validate with reality. So um, using reason, so you make room for something else. Um, and these consequences, philosophical consequences are the easiest to evade. They're very long term. The consequences are very long term uh, if, you, if you do these things. Um, 
I mean, they can take decades, but they can even sometimes take generations. Um, concepts are usually very poorly defined, vague, and contradictory. So when they're very abstract, so people don't even realize they're necessarily evading or doing any of this stuff. Eventually, however, bad philosophy does clash with reality. The clash does come to a head. Um, and often, though, unfortunately, it comes to a head well after the cultural and ideological necrosis has already been devastating. And so you end up in a situation where you have a choice between you want Stalin or Hitler, right? And if that's your choice, it's too late. The like the the philosophical decay has has happened too much. Those of you, that's your choice. Um, and it was decisions probably well before you were born that were made that that made that possible. Or if you want to look at a more contemporary decision, um, right now, often in the US, we are stuck with the decision. Like our our situation is well, you're going to be looted. And by looted, I mean you're going to be taxed. Uh, we're going to inflate your money, which is a tax, and we're going to uh, borrow money that your grandchildren will have to pay off, and never really will be able to. So we'll keep borrowing. Uh, but we're going to do we're going to do those those are forms of looting. We're going to loot from you, and we're going to loot from you to pay for I don't know military spending, the police state, giant social programs, bailouts for banks, green energy boondoggles. And the only question you get asked is, "Hey, how would you like that money divvied up? The red plan or the blue plan? Those are your options, right?" Um, and the fact that that's the question being asked, that that's the context around this question, um, is a result of choices that were made a long, long time ago. So. Um, those are the choices about how much philosophical poison to swallow. So it it makes for a tough short-term problem to deal with. If you suddenly wake up and realize that you're in this situation where bad choices from 100 years ago uh, gave you the situation that you're in now, especially if you're honest enough to realize how you got here. So, um, so the whole point of that <laughs> is to, is to, is to, explain that the the ease with which evasion happens is i think inversely proportional to how concrete something is and that's unfortunate because often the more abstract things are much more devastating all right so <laughs> someone asked if this is my take on the kobayashi maru that's a really good analogy. I don't mean for it to be, but it's certainly, I know it feels like that. Um, so, okay, so let's get back to this art stuff. In terms of the nature of the sin of an artist, right? We tend to be more forgiving of sins that are easier to evade. Um, so, uh, just like I said, you know, look, seeing one dead body in front of you is much more impactful than reading about stats of a million dead bodies because one's very abstract and one's very concrete. Um, that's an emotional reaction, but it's also understandable, right? I mean, stats require your imagination. The number of million is actually too too large for people to comprehend. I mean, you can, you can comprehend if I say a million dollars, but if I say, think of $1 bills and then I'll think of a million of them together, you can't really hold that in your head. Uh, it's too large of a number. Um, and, and frankly, evolutionarily, like proximity to a body would imply kinship, right? So. Or, or closer kinship than if someone, you know, comes into the tribe and says, hey, in another continent, people died. It's like, well, 
okay. But if someone dies in front of me, like that's, I'm probably more related to them. So uh, there's, it kind of almost makes sense evolutionarily. I don't want to say it's moral, but it kind of makes sense that that's how we react. So, um, you know, at the one extreme of artists, we have people who make mistakes that we consider innocent mistakes. And these generally are philosophical mistakes and often political mistakes. They basically support, you know, imagine people that, um, someone who supports political liberty and an individualist ethics generally, but they've made room for the concept of the public good or the social contract. I think those are okay. It's a relatively easy mistake to make, especially in the current culture. Um, it's easy to kind of forgive. It's easy to, um, not only not condemn them, but it's easy to be friends with them. We, we, you know, I'm friends with people like that. Right. Um, in fact, many of you, you know, many of you would disagree with me on some of this, right? So we view it as a disagreement, but we view it as kind of an honest one. You might try and persuade them, which I do try and persuade people obviously, but it's not a catastrophic to a friendship necessarily. It could be depending on how seriously that person takes the concept. So, uh, if they said, well, I, I really like the concept of the public good, so that gives me the right to steal from you whenever I want to because I have less money than you do. Um, you know, that would probably disrupt a friendship. But then again, that person wouldn't be described in the category that I said at the beginning, which is they're basically support political liberty and individualist ethics. So, um, so that's kind of a, a mild, quote, sin. It's a very easily forgivable sin. It's a disagreement. We view it as a, an error of uh, an honest error in reasoning and it's the kind of thing that you know we want to hash out over beers and hope hopefully we can you know come to agreement at some point uh, on the other extreme there's someone guilty of the you know there are people that are guilty of acts for which evasion is difficult to even imagine possible right like the members of the charles manson family who killed sharon tate right it's difficult to imagine evading the evil that they were doing. It's difficult to, for, to imagine that they didn't see it. It's right in front of them. Ted Bundy, right? It's really hard to imagine him evading. It's not like you don't look at Ted Bundy and go, that's probably just a mistake in reasoning. <laughs> he probably didn't realize. It's, it's really hard to give him that much leeway, right? Uh, Andrea Yates is another one that comes to mind, right? Absolutely, you know, despicable human being, right? I mean, she drowned her five kids in the bathtub, right? So, you know, you don't leave room for people like that generally. You don't say, yeah, but Andrea makes really good souffle, so she can come over for cards, right? Like, that's not, that's the kind of thing that is beyond our capacity to even imagine a person could evade on it and, like, be still a good person. Like they're, they're, there's clearly evasions impossible there. So they have to know. Uh, and again, as I said, even though the consequences for more abstract decisions it could actually be worse, right? I mean, I think it was, it was in the 90s, maybe 91, Ron Paul told people, hey, uh, be careful about this expanding NATO thing. No one wanted to talk about the expanding NATO thing. Hey, we could get into wars if you expand this NATO thing kind of an abstract policy wonkish thing to worry about. No one cares. He probably, I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but he's probably just arguing on principle we shouldn't do. Eh, very abstract. No one cares. Here we are with war in Ukraine. 
I think one could argue <laughs> the existence of NATO was directly uh, one of the contributing factors. Um, Nineteen thirteen, right? There was this let's let's form a Federal Reserve. It seems very abstract. Oh, you know, don't worry, it's just money. Money itself is extremely abstract concept, and we're gonna don't worry. We just need to fix volatility and some other stuff and smooth out the markets. It's all it's all abstract stuff that you don't have to worry about. You just worry about you know the dollar in your pocket and going to the store and buying milk, and this won't affect that, right? Um, but of course, you know, a hundred years later, the Federal Reserve has enabled the entire expansion of government, the entire police state, the entire military industrial complex. Like it is probably one of the most impactful policy decisions ever made, and it is made in the abstract. But you probably at the time you might not have not invited the person over to dinner. They don't feel like an axe murderer. You'd have been like. Well, I disagree with you about this Federal Reserve thing, but it's it's so abstract. It's fine. So, um, and obviously there's philosophic mistakes, not just policy mistakes. I mean, you could argue that Rousseau had some hand in the reign of terror in France. You could certainly draw a line between uh, Marx's philosophical errors and 100 million deaths by communism in, in the 20th century. So, and frankly, I think you could also draw lines. I know this will... Uh, anti-fascists won't like it when I say this, but uh, you could draw a line between Marx and fascists. Uh, fascists were economic Marxists. I mean, the Nazis were. Uh, they just added some non-economic factors into that framework because they thought the Marxists were too focused on only economics. Um, in fact, Stephen Hicks has a great documentary about this called uh, Nietzsche, Nazis, and National Socialism, if anyone wants to go watch that. Maybe I'll find a link and stick it somewhere. All right. So that's how there's this like um, the nature of the sin matters to us, right? And I, again, I'm just trying to be descriptive. I'm not trying to say what should matter or what shouldn't matter and blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying like this seems to be what matters to us. We seem to be forgiving of this category, you know, abstract stuff and much less forgiving with stuff that's very clearly impossible to evade. Um. Okay, and the second factor is how, okay, now how does that sin of this person, how does it relate to their work, right? Uh, and the big question here is like, how much does this art relate to the sin of the artist? In other words, is there a complete detachment from the nature of their sin or is there a relationship between them? So, because um, a relationship between the, the sin of the artist and the art breaks that fourth wall, he's a, theater term it, it breaks that fourth wall um imagine that you're watching uh you're in the middle of watching fiddler on the roof uh on broadway and the actor who's playing tevia in the middle of there's a famous song between tevia and and goldie it's kind of a interesting deep question about love he's asking do you love me he's asking goldie do you love me there's this, this song if you're in the audience and in the middle of that song, the actor who's playing Tevia stops to take a phone call and you hear him like talk to his wife about stuff to pick up on, you know, on the way home at the store after the show, it totally takes you out of the show. You're out like you're out. He, he broke it. Right. Um, and that's not a moral example, but um, this, uh, you know, when this happens with respect to uh, the disturbing aspects of, an artist um 
when that bleeds into the art, I think we tend to find it more difficult to separate the art from the artist. Let me try and give some hypothetical and then maybe I'll tell you a real example. So, um, all right. By the way, pretend that you like this art. I, be, I don't even like the art I'm about to show you, but pretend that you like this art uh, because it doesn't work if you're like, well, I don't like the art anyway. Like, okay, fine, I get it. Pretend that you like this art. So, um, so okay, I show you this, this piece of art here. This is called Famine. Uh, it was painted in 1904 by John Charles Dahlman. He's an English painter. It's clearly dark. It's clearly a, a dark component to this. this. There's a, for those just listening, there's like a guy that looks kind of like death and something that looks like ravens around him and, and wolves surrounding him. And it, it, uh, it's kind of all desaturated in some way. It's definitely a, it's definitely a dark painting, but let's say you liked it. Okay. Or we can even look here. Let's look at a more famous one. Um, this is, uh, this is a Cezanne. It's, I forget the name of it. It's like still life with a skull or something. I don't remember exactly the name, but for those listening, it's still life with a skull. <laughs> I guess basically that's what it is. Um, so uh, you might you might look at either one of these pieces of art and you might say, again, assuming that you like them, you might say, oh, I'd buy a print of that art. I, I like that art, right? But then... If I said, actually, uh, here, I'll go back to this one. Actually, this one here, this, uh, this famine one, actually, it was painted by Walter Duranti in 1933. Or I could say the same thing about Cezanne. I could say, well, actually, this Cezanne was painted by Walter Duranti in 1933. Now, for those of you who don't, I think most people know who Walter Duranty was. He was the New York Times reporter who basically quashed the Holodomor. He, you know, Stalin was busy starving Ukrainians in the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, and millions of them starved. They they turned to cannibalism. Kids died. It was absolutely horrific. Uh, and Walter Duranty played a role in keeping uh, the truth quiet so that the West didn't know. Um, and protecting Stalin's uh, reputation. He also won a Pulitzer Prize, so there you go for that. Uh, so after you learn that, you might say, now I don't even want that on my wall calendar. Do wall calendars still exist? Whatever. You might, if they existed, you might say, I don't even want that on my wall calendar because I look at it and it, like, I can't not see the Hall of Demore anymore. Like <laughs> I look at it and I see a skull and I'm like, Oh, or I look at it and I see, you know, death standing there with wolves. And it's like, Oh, now that I know Walter Durante painted it and he's a person whom I think is despicable for his behavior related to famine. It's really hard to separate the art that it would be really hard if he was the, the painter. However, if he painted this, this, by the way, is Dogs and Whelps. It was painted in 1853 by a guy named Benno Adam. For those of you listening, it's just puppies. Basically, it's just dogs and some puppies. It's a cute dog puppy picture. Um, if you found out this was painted by Walter Durante, um, 
it might be that you say, well, I really love dogs. This doesn't remind me of the Haldemore at all. It doesn't remind me of his role in the Haldemore. I don't see his, his, his sin doesn't bleed into this painting for me at all. Now, it could be that for some people, even the dog, even the puppy painting is too much. It could be they would say, Walter Durante, I think he was so bad that nothing he paints could ever appeal to me because his sins bleed into everything, just knowing that he was involved. Um, and obviously, I don't know what the answer for that is because this is a mix of his sins and how much the sin reveals itself in the art. And like that's a measure of your value of the art and your value of the sin and how much do you think he's actually evil for this and right uh if the sin is too big to you and you say like this is this is unforgivable then then you might have a, a slightly different reaction but it could be that you're a modern journalist and you you think well <laughs> Durante did nothing wrong communism's great he did what he had to do to to get access to stalin stalin meant well everyone makes a big deal out of him so uh in that case, maybe any of those paintings might be fine for you. Uh, and, and you might be able to separate the art from the artist because you don't need to. Um, so it, they might, even the ones that remind you of the Haldemore, you might look at the skull one or the famine one and say, well, yeah, that doesn't remind me of the Haldemore a little bit, but it doesn't spoil the art because I don't view his sin as particularly big. You got to break a few eggs, Stalin meant well, I don't care, right? And again, that's just because there's this mix of it's a combination of like how you view the sin of the artist plus how much of that sin reveals itself in the art. Um, and so for a journalist who loves Walter Durante and doesn't care, the sin is so small that it doesn't matter. But for someone who thinks the sin is really big, it might matter even for the dog picture. And then there's a bunch of people in between who are like, well, it matters, but uh, not for the dog picture, but it totally matters for the famine picture because that, that would bother me. Um, Again, I'm not talking about proscriptive here. I'm not saying what you should do. I'm just saying how people might react to this stuff. And also, I'll give you a more contemporary example because maybe that one's a little bit, that one's a little bit of a stretch. I was trying to find something where like the person's sin was not, like it wasn't Stalin. He also wasn't Ted Bundy. Like it's, there's some kind of some maybe relation there. It's kind of hard to see. Um, but a lot of cases, the sin is kind of in between and, and it's the content of the art that matters here. But I'll take a more contemporary example, um, just out of my personal life. Movies. Um, now, in movies, I will say often um, the sin of the person gets dragged in uh depending on the part that they have like how big of a role they have is are they a background character that you don't really notice or are they the lead actor like that's the primary way that the sin gets pulled into the movie because when you see their face that's when you see you know who they really are and it may be hard to look at them you know that's that's why um that's why you end up with like luke skywalker you know, you know whenever I see Mark Hamill, it always looks like Luke Skywalker to me or whatever. Like, that's why you see people that are like, oh, that's just that guy. It's always going to be that guy. It's he, They get typecast um, because their previous roles get pulled in with them. Well, the same thing can happen with their real life. You know, they, they get pulled in and people see them and they can't unsee that. So it's, um, so it, recently, um, You know, the post-2016, we've seen, like I said earlier, we've seen a lot of actors <clears throat> wear their TDS on their sleeves. And 
there's an actor named Ron Perlman. I don't know if you guys know Ron Perlman. Um, he was in, I think he was the star in Hellboy, which I've never seen. Also, I think he's from a thing called Sons of Anarchy, which I've never seen. Um, but what I did see from Ron Perlman over the past few years was a lot of just spitting hatred. And, and look, I'm not a huge, I'm not a huge Trump supporter or anything. Like I did vote for the guy, but uh, you know, I was hoping that the bull would wreck the China shop. That didn't really happen. I, I got pretty disappointed. Um, but I didn't, you know, Ron Perlman had TDS, clearly. Um, and he went around spitting nasty things about Trump constantly uh, and getting very upset about it. Well, I was recently looking through, you know, we wanted to watch a movie or we thinking about some kind of action or, you know, uh, comic-y type of movie. And um, I saw Hellboy listed. I skipped Hellboy specifically because he was starring in it. Now, and he's got a lot of makeup, so maybe I wouldn't have even noticed, but I avoided the movie because he was in it. Um, and not because I was, maybe I was trying to do something intellectual, like I don't want to support this guy, but also all I could see was the guy on Twitter spitting about Trump. And I'm like, well, it doesn't, I can't, I can't unsee that. I'm not going to watch that. Um, I might not avoid a movie if he had a smaller part in it, right? Because it wouldn't be this constant reminder. Less of his sin will be dragged into the movie. Uh, another example is Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt. Um, <laughs> someone says uh, Hellboy wasn't that good anyway. That's good. Um, Patton Oswalt. He's worse, actually, because he attracted Trump supporters quite a lot. And he also used language. Um, he called the maggots, obviously a reference to uh, fly larva, uh, backwards, racist, sexist, homophobic dipshits was another quote that he had. Um, and that bothers me quite a lot because as much as I disagree and think a lot of, uh, a lot of the political activity is pure evil that happens in the world. I, I might criticize AOC using ad hominem. She's a public figure and I might mock her using ad hominem. But I would never I, – I think there's something base and wrong about calling people who vote for AOC insects or vile whatever. Like I, that's not called for because even people who vote for AOC, I might say they're ignorant, but that – I'm actually trying to be descriptive. They probably don't understand economics or they've been duped or whatever. But so I, might, I might say general things about them in that way, but I wouldn't uh, – I, I wouldn't be dehumanizing them in the way that Patton Oswalt is willing to do to half the country, right? Um, and he's a tough one because his voice is very distinctive. So even if he's just in an animated something and you hear him, I can't hear or see Patton Oswalt anymore uh, without recalling all of this, which, I, which I'm which i considering his sin. Like, I think this is, I think what he did was despicable. I think the way he's comported himself has been despicable. Uh, I think it's hateful um, and and completely uncalled for. And so I can't see or hear his voice uh, without thinking of that. It ruins the art for me. So I don't even like, I don't even like stuff that he's in um, anymore. Another one, uh, another one, here's, here's one that's a little bit more, 
Uh, oh, someone said, I'm sorry, I keep saying someone. It's the same person. Let me see if I can read this. Arnawa Widag, Widagda. I'm sorry that I'm having trouble pronouncing your name, but I'm going to try. I'll try better. Arnawa. Arnawa says, a Patton Oswalt ruined my favorite Sandman scene. Me too. I watched Sandman. I generally liked it, but he did ruin that scene. For that reason, right? Um, let's talk about, here. here's another contemporary example that's um, much worse uh, in terms of the severity of the crime. Let's talk about Roman Polanski. Uh, he's very popular in Hollywood. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, he was charged with rape of a 13-year-old. He pled to the lesser charge of sexual relations with a 13-year-old. Um, pretty disgusting. A pretty vile act to have on your resume. Um, and uh, now I've watched The Pianist. I didn't realize it was his movie at the time, but I've watched The Pianist. It's about being a Jew in Poland in World War II. It's probably a little, it's a little bit easier to separate the art from the artist for a movie like The Pianist than it would have been if he made a remake of Lolita. That would have been really hard to separate the two. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, uh, as far as I know, he did not ever have any scandal like that in his life. I don't think he had, I mean, the book is disturbing as hell, right? But uh, how much more disturbing would it be if it was a film by Roman Polanski, right? At, at least for me, there would be, it will be much harder to separate. I, I would be like, I can't, I can't separate the art from the artist at that point. It just wouldn't be possible. Um, at least for me, again. Um, Dawn says, I have mixed feelings about Polanski because of everything that happened to him. And part of the blame should go to the girl's mother for sending her in there. Um, blame is not a zero sum game in the sense of like, it's not like here's all the blame and she gets some and he gets some, uh, blame is assigned to a person for their individual actions to the extent that their actions were intentional and wrong. So he gets all the blame for his behavior. She gets all the blame for being stupid about sending her child in with him and, and being a bad mom in that way. Um, so, but yeah, and I get he had a, I mean, look, and that's probably why The Pianist is a good movie. It's about his experience post-World War II being a Jew in, in Poland. So, um, and I, I get that he went through a lot, but I'd have a hard time if he made a movie version of Lolita. I probably wouldn't be able to separate the art from the artist. Maybe you guys would. I probably couldn't. So um, the summary here is that these are the two, the two factors that I see that we uh, tend to take into account when we react to art uh, is the nature of the, of the sin of the artist. So how abstract or concrete it was. Uh, again, this is all according to our own moral codes. I'm talking about this according to my moral code. So I'm talking about individualism and individual's ethics and all that stuff, right? The nature of the sin, 
So what they do and how abstract or concrete is it? That seems to matter to us, whether we can separate the art from the artist. Um, and also, I think the relation of that sin to the work. So if the work itself reflects the sin or the motivation behind the sin in some way, that's more of a problem than if uh, it's completely unrelated, right? So the Kanye thing, I don't, like I said, I don't, I've never liked his music. I don't even like that genre of music. Uh, I just, I don't, I find it. Yeah, I, I don't like it. Um, I haven't followed. To, I, I saw that he said some horrible things about Jews. He absolutely did. Uh, I saw he kind of apologized in Lex Friedman a little bit for some of it. Also, I personally think he's a little bit off his rocker. I think he's been off his rocker always uh, when conservatives jumped on the Kanye bandwagon because he happened to don a red hat. And like Trump, I thought that was probably a, a bad person to get in bed with. He does seem a little bit kooky. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to – I haven't analyzed the whole Kanye's comments and what he said and what he retracted and blah, blah, blah. But uh, assuming that the mainstream narrative is basically correct – and I don't have a lot of reason to doubt that. Uh, I think it would matter if you liked his music. I think it might matter to you whether his next album, if his next album was about, um, you know, I don't know, what does he make albums? The last one was about was about religion. So if his next album is about how much he loves Jesus and, and religious, which I think was his last one, it's very religious and about love and Jesus and maybe about, marriage or his struggles with marriage or whatever like if it's like that you might be able to separate that okay yeah the guy's kooky says some kooky things fine if he makes if his next album is about the jewish problem it's gonna be or like that's a reference in it and like there's a lot of okay that's gonna be hard right um even if he starts joking about it it would be hard because it calls back it reminds you like oh yeah this guy actually does really have some kooky beliefs here i don't want to be reminded of those kooky beliefs while i'm listening to this album and if he's going to include stuff that that references even obliquely his craziness i won't be able to appreciate the art and i won't want to consume it that's my guess is what would happen but i don't know um oh yeah greg the baritone thank you for bringing this up he said then there's michael jackson michael jackson's another one that i'm uh Maybe people will disagree with me on this. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the jury's out on Michael Jackson. And the reason for that is I've only heard one side. And um, I do know, look, I watched Gasland and thought, oh, my God, fracking's horrible. Then I read about fracking. Then I saw how Morgan Spurlock, I think, was the guy. Then I saw how he manipulated the documentary and how actually the basically the opposite of that documentary was true, and I had come to the wrong conclusion. So I don't necessarily trust the Michael Jackson documentary stuff. I haven't watched all of them, but I think I watched one of them. It sounds horrible. It seems very horrible. I'm also, I haven't done my due diligence on it, and I have seen a couple people whom I would give the benefit of the doubt to say, mm, this is not as cut and dry. They, they don't think he did what he's being accused of. That said, it is kind of weird to have, you know, build a like giant playground and have kids over your house. So yeah, that's kind of weird. 
Uh, I don't know where he is on on that, so whatever. But again, heresy. I'm not a huge Michael Jackson fan, so I don't really have to struggle with the moral issue of whether to buy uh, Michael Jackson albums because I'm not a big fan. So also he's dead. Someone else owns the rights to his estate, so you wouldn't be paying him or his estate. Like someone else owns the rights to his music at this point. So uh, if you really wanted to listen to him, I don't know who you're paying. I don't remember who bought the rights to his music, but I don't think it's his estate that even has it anymore. So, um, so anyway, so I think how the sin relates to the work, getting back to Kanye, the Kanye example, if he's writing albums, that's, that's referencing his crazy, uh, comments well harder to separate and like i said i think for movies uh largely what makes it difficult is specifically how how involved the actor is in that you know the actor that's done the things how involved he is he in the movie right um someone mentioned sandman earlier Patton oswald ruined a scene yeah okay but i watched the whole thing because he was just in a scene and ruined a scene like he wasn't in much of it and I didn't realize that I was already kind of invested and he came along and was in it. I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to turn it off and never watch it. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> power through. Uh, but if I know he's in something, especially if I know he's a main character, I'm just not going to, not going to watch it. So uh, I'm going to, there's one more super chat from Richard Petz. I want to put on screen here. He says, <clears throat> here's another couple of bucks for pushing hard on our understanding. Much, needed practice for our mental health. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, I know people might disagree with, it's hard to talk about this in a descriptive manner. I'm really just trying to do it in a descriptive manner. I'm not telling you this is how you should react to this music and this is what you should do and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think, uh, and maybe there's other factors that come in, but those were the two obvious ones for for me and for uh, my family when we were talking about it at the table. Like these are the obvious factors that seem to play a role in our feelings about the art, our ability to even kind of separate the two, um, and, or to or yeah, because sometimes we can't. Um, and those seem those seems to be the contributing factors. If there's ones I'm missing. Uh, Great. Or if, or if maybe I'm wrong about these and you guys want to provide some nuance, um, please do so. But in terms of proscription, that's going to be something that you you measure your values. You measure the, the severity of what they've done against your own value structure. You measure that against the value of the art to you, right? Like I said, I don't care about solving this answer for Kanye because I don't buy his music anyway. I'm never going to buy his music. I don't like his music. So who cares? Like, not who cares. I mean, if he did bad things, that's bad, but I don't have to make the decision about separating the art from the artist because I don't care about the art. So um, that's a decision for, for you guys, and I'm hoping that you can... I'm hoping that this, this conversation helps you kind of sort out your own thoughts on here, whether you support an artist or not in the context of your values. Um, and I would remind you, just don't... We're in a culture right now in which there is a lot of moral grandstanding. Obviously, the virtue signaling from the left is the obvious example, but there's also a lot from, from the right, from the conservatives, a lot of moral grandstanding. Don't castigate yourself for how you feel about a piece of art 
You can always do introspection about it if you want to, but don't blame yourself for your emotional response uh, for anything, including a piece of art. If you find it disturbing that you have a particular emotional response, fine. You can do introspection. You can figure out if you're, you know, you're, there's a problem with your philosophy or maybe your psychology. Maybe you go to a therapist if you're like, oh, my God, why do I really react in this way to this horrible thing? Or maybe it's just going to be part of your makeup and it's, it's part of who you are and it might be related to something that you just can't change about yourself. Um, so there's a difference between feeling a certain way and acting a certain way. So don't beat yourself up if you feel a certain way about something that you don't think you should. Um, all right, before we end, I want to look at the poll. Let me grab this poll. I guess I can end it. End poll. All right, let's see what people said. So here are the results. The question was, do you ever consider the moral character of an artist when appreciating his or her art? 47% of you said yes, even if I'm not paying. 31% um, said, nope, I don't care. And 21% yes, but only if I'm paying for it. So there you go. I mean, that's pretty, that's actually much more evenly split than I expected. So about a third of you just don't care anyway. Um I would challenge you. I bet you would care. I bet I could find a, an extreme scenario where you'd be like, I just can't. But maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, uh, and 47% is higher than I thought. I thought most people would care if they were paying for it, but not if they weren't paying. Um, but the reverse is true. So, Greg the Baritone says, uh, Carter, what would you do if you found out your all-time favorite artist or thinker was a massive racist Oh, he meant rapist, but either or or pedophile. What would I do? Um, I wouldn't support them financially. I would probably go back and reevaluate their art. Um, I don't know that I can say honestly that I would stop consuming the art if it didn't. if I didn't see evidence in the art of the character flaw that led them to be that way. So again, maybe a, a clearer, a more clear cut example would be visual art. If there was a painting that I liked and it was still life on a table, I don't know why I would like such a painting, but let's say it was bland still life on a table. Uh, and couldn't reasonably const be construed in any way to relate to anything like that, um, then I'm not sure that I would do much. I probably wouldn't purchase the art if it was going to enrich the artist, um, e even if it didn't have a relation to their, their sin. Um, but often what happens, I mean, I've definitely had this happen where I see... I understand where an artist is coming from. And then I go back, especially with music, I go back and read the lyrics and I actually do fall out of love with songs. And I'll be like, Oh, I understand what they're saying. And now they sound like a moron. And when I just thought they were like, blah, 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 they didn't sound like a moron. They were just making noises and I wasn't putting the syllables together. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I was, you know, not understanding the song. But now that I understand, I can, I, you know, 
I do fall out of love with it. I don't know if that answers your question, Greg. Um, I hope so. Uh, Richard Petz also says, thank you, Richard. He says, I wonder if a famous, if I was a famous artist and now had my life under the microscope, how would I feel? Maybe something to ask myself. Well, you're bringing up a really good point also, Richard, which is I do think I, I do leave room for people to grow. So um, now, again, if Ted Bundy was like, oops, I mean, that's <laughs> that that's not going to cut it, <laughs> right? Ted Bundy, that's a little bit much. But if someone was racist or sexist or, you know, just had bad ideas or said mean things or was a jerk or whatever, even if they were like, you know, somewhat lecherous, but not actually rapey or something like it was like, and they reformed and they grew up and they learned and they changed. And I thought it was sincere. Um, that would, that would, you know, that would be a factor for me. Um, absolutely. I think it should be a factor just generally in your life, not just with the artists, but, um, you know, it's not, people aren't the one thing and, uh, it is possible for people to grow. Now it's, it's very unlikely that if you found someone who was that atrocious, like a Ted Bundy, it's very unlikely that they, there's something so wrong there that it's very unlikely that they really could ever change. I mean, I don't believe humans are infinitely flexible in, in terms of their chain, like their psychological flexibility. I don't think you can heal from that. But, you know, if you just got a bad attitude about something and it comes out in, you know, some sort of nasty way, like like racism or misogyny or something, it's like, or, or uh, misan misangyny, misandry, uh, the, the opposite. Uh, yeah, you, you could, I think you could heal from that. You have to recognize it. They'd have to say, oh, I was this. Why was I this? I went to therapy. I figured it out. I'm apologizing. You know, they'd have to take steps to, to make restitution. Um, but, yeah. Um, Arnala says Von Braun. I actually don't know Von Braun, so I can't answer. Uh, I don't know much about I'm going to look up. Von Braun is widely seen as, this is according to Wikipedia, German aerospace engineer, space architect. Oh, I should know this. This Oh, Werner Von Braun. I know Werner. Why do I know him? Now that you say Werner Von Braun, now a name rings a bell, the Nazi dude. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the question is, oh, so this is actually getting outside of art. This isn't art. This is just science, right? He, he invents some stuff, right? Um, yeah, you use the inventions. I mean, someone, I don't care if it's the, if it's, you know, Stalin, if Stalin invents a cure to cancer, I'm going to use it. Now, uh, if it's Stalin, I won't feel bad stealing it from, from him because he'll be in jail and even a cure to cancer can't make up for what he's done. So, uh, like there's no, we can call that his restitution. <laughs> like, all right, you killed millions and millions of people. We're going to take you out of power. And uh, fortunately, you cured cancer. So that's going to be how you make it up to civilization and humanity. Um, so like, I don't, you know, I, <laughs> there's, I did, I don't view that as the initiation of the use of force. If someone is, is that bad, if someone's a Nazi, uh, <laughs> 
it's not the initiation of the use of force to take their discoveries and and not compensate them for it and say, look, uh, you've killed a bunch of people. You actually should be punished for that. And uh, the product of your intellectual labor is going to go to making up for your crimes. And that's that's really restitution. That's a form of rest restitution. Um, so Richard Petz also says redemption matters. However, it's not a free pass. It must be hard one. Yeah, I mean, we can go off. We could go off on this all day, right? Because uh, saying sorry means a lot less to me than it does to other people. And I, I actually tell people this a lot. Um, like I'll have friends who'll say, "Well, this person said they were sorry," and it's like that's nice, that's good, that's a start. But uh, if there's no, if there's no um, clear steps to change, and there's no attempt. To at restitution, it's a hollow apology. So if uh, it's like, you know, the kind of the, the classic example, right? Uh, the abusive guy comes home with some flowers and it's like, I'm sorry, baby. It's like, all right, well, if you're sorry, then you're in therapy and you are doing more than flowers to figure out. You are like doing everything you can to change as a person and you're telling your wife that it's up to her when you come back, if ever, right? Like that's how you that's how you do it, right? And if she says, "I never want you back," you accept it and you leave her alone. Um, so, all right. Uh, someone says, "Do we think less of Oppenheimer?" Greg says, "Do we think less of Oppenheimer for his inventions?" Uh I mean, I don't, I don't blame him for his inventions necessarily. I mean, I don't know, nukes are horrible, but uh, I don't. Although maybe there's nuance to that question that I don't get. Um, also, Stevie J says Von Braun is everyone's favorite Operation Paperclip, bro. Yeah, for some reason, Von Braun, the name didn't click until I went to Wikipedia and it was like, oh, Werner Von Braun. Yes, for some reason, my brain was like, is he a composer? Who's Von Braun? Um, but yeah, he's the operation paperclip dude. Richard Petz says, uh, read your latest Substack article. Time will tell. What was the latest one? Oh, um, hope, <laughs> hope against woke. Uh, yeah, I should mention, in addition to trying to make this show, um, only focused on one topic every week. So I'm, I am going to wrap it up because it's been longer than I wanted. Uh, I am starting to write more. We're going to start trying to get other people to write more. Um, there's going to be some changes to unsafe space, but I'm not going to. I'm not really ready to talk about them too much, but I am going to focus more on writing. Personally, I like it much better. Um, so if you don't read, I apologize. You should probably start to read. Uh, but um, if you're not on our Substack, you can check it out. You can go to unsafespace.substack.com or all the articles are also, the old ones aren't there yet. They're migrating, but all the new stuff is on unsafespace.com. It's right at the front page. Um, so you can find it there. Uh, Instead of Substack, that's that's easy. So, all right. And uh, I think that's all. Um, thank you guys for for staying with me here uh, on this and and contributing to the discussion. It was interesting. You guys brought some interesting questions up and uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, someone says, "Oh my God, is that No Face Stevie?" That is No Face. Wow, good job, Stevie. That is No Face. Uh, my bookshelf game is strong. I have. 
My favorite bookshelf thing you can't see. It's above there. It's the Fruity Odie bars. Uh, I want to say girls, but I think they're blue alien things, whatever. Um, speaking, by the way, of separating the art from the artist, Joss Whedon. Um, all right. So uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, we do like to sometimes do troublesome arguments. If you've got an argument you have trouble refuting or an argument you'd like help articulating, please let me know in Discord or or wherever, and we will try and tackle that. Thank you for those of you who support us financially. Thanks to Richard Petz for all the super chats today. Um, when you support us, you do get your name in the credits. In addition to this show, we've got uh, a bunch of other shows. Earlier today, we had Rebel Civics with Keith Bissett, and he interviewed Dennis Misigoy, who is a libertarian candidate for Senate, uh, for U.S. Senate in Florida, running against Marco Rubio. Um, and, uh, you know, not everyone agrees with everything the libertarians say, but uh, it's interesting that usually people pick on them. They'll find one thing. They'll be like, well, I don't like what this guy said. Therefore, I'm going to vote for Mark Rubio. There should be almost nothing you like about Mark Rubio. Uh, he's horrible. So, um, Marco Rubio. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not telling you who to vote for if you're in Florida or whatever, but check out the interview if you care. Um, Narrative Distance is on Mondays with Juliet and myself. And uh, Thursday we have Token Minority Report, but I don't actually know if there is one this week. I also don't know if there's an occasional levity on Friday. I'm sorry. I just don't know. Social media will tell you, I'm sure. So, oh, what I do know is this Sunday, Juliet is hosting Book Club. It is at 11 a.m. Pacific time. It is Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. It's a short, fast, easy read. You have time, even if you haven't started, you have time now to pick that book up, start at page one, and get done by Sunday. So if you want to join that discussion, um, send an email to speak at unsafespace.com, and we will get you in on the, the list. So, all right. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you sticking around. Uh, I will see you all next time. And like I said, please don't forget, if you if you like to read, which I recommend, uh, I like reading much more than watching videos, and I like writing much more than speaking in videos. So if you want to do that, go check out unsafespace.com or our substack, unsafespace.substack.com. I will see you guys next time. Thanks for watching. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. 
I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. Are you like a crazy person? <laughs>